Welcome to The Buzz, the official podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association. I'm your host, Rick Mitchell, and I am here today with Aaron Cohen and Eugene Hawley, Jr. Aaron has written for the Chicago Tribune and Downbeat, among other publications. He is the author of Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power, and the forthcoming Gentlemen of Jazz, a biography of Ramsey Lewis. He teaches at the City Colleges of Chicago. Eugene writes for Downbeat, The Hot House Jazz Guide, and Publishers Weekly. His work has previously appeared in the New York Times Book Review, The Village Voice, and Jazz Times. He is one of the writers interviewed in Willard Jenkins' anthology of black jazz critics, Ain't But a Few of Us. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here. The topic for today is white critics, black music, which is pretty much the history of jazz criticism going back 100 years to French music critics talking about Sidney Bechet, and then shortly after that, American critics picking up on it. And then in the 1930s, a wave of writers, John Hammond Sr., Leonard Feather, who came from England. Are we okay with this? Generally, white critics, black musicians? I don't know if it's a question of being okay. I think there's a kind of quantum truth in it. What do I mean by that? Yes, since the inception of the music in major magazines around the world, there have been an overabundance of white critics talking about black music. But there's also a parallel truth going on for the same time period. Black people, they may not have been in the metronome or downbeat, whatever, but there has always been a dialogue discussion about black music with black people, sometimes and many times in their newspaper publications. For the same 100 years that the people you mentioned have been talking about the music, there's been tremendous jazz coverage in African-American newspapers, such as the Pittsburgh Courier, such as the Chicago Defender, the various regional editions of the Baltimore Afro-American, which my grandmother wrote for. And even in some instances, you have various musicians like Billy Taylor write about jazz in Black publications. Herbie Nichols did the same thing. Yes, you can say that there has been an overwhelming majority of white critics writing in major magazines about jazz. But at the same time, this parallel dialogue has always been going on in our community. Good point. Yeah, and I agree with Eugene uh, Holly said, you know, and of course he has a wonderful, great depth of understanding and knowledge of that history. So really, all I can add to what he said is that specifically here in Chicago, as he mentioned, the Chicago Defender, writers there like Earl Calloway. And I certainly became aware of this over the last uh, couple of years as I'd been working with Ramsey Lewis on his memoir and going through archives of papers like the Chicago Defender and would see articles about him really early on. And there really has been a number of African-Americans writing about jazz. And as Eugene Holly said, in papers like the Chicago Defender that were for the community. Also, kind of a recent event bringing up the history of black jazz critics, the recent death of the rock guitarist Tom Verlaine. There's been some things written about him. And one of the interviews he mentioned was that when he was a kid, he was a kid growing up in the 1960s, and he felt that it was Amiri Baraka's writing on jazz that really inspired him to seek out people like Albert Eiler and John Coltrane. It was He felt that Amiri Baraka's writing on what was then called the New Jazz 
was so inspirational to him as a young musician. So these are just a couple little things uh, throwing in there to add addendum to what Eugene Holly so brilliantly just stated. In Willard Jenkins' recently published book, Ain't But a Few of Us, which compiled interviews that he had done for his blog over the years, one of the kind of underlying questions, you know, that is raised with a lot of the people is, do Black critics writing about jazz theoretically hear the music differently than white critics if they share experiences or cultural reference point with the musicians? Again, I think that depends on who the Black person is. It depends on who the white person is, and more importantly, where they grew up. There's really no easy answer to that. I, I will say that, for example, in full disclosure, uh, I've had the privilege and pleasure of being included in that book. Willard Jenkins is an old friend, an old mentor of mine. So let me just state that out the way for the people in the back. Having said all that, I can tell you that for the people that were born in the 1960s, I, I was born in 1960. So when I'm around Black people, give or take three or four years older or younger than me, we're going to have the same references. So we may approach jazz and how we hear it from a from that viewpoint. But I wouldn't make a blanket statement like that because, again, there could be a Black person, let's say, born in 1970 that grew up in an environment that other than their own parents had no Black people around them. I don't think they're going to listen to this music the same way that I would, even though we're both Black, but we grew up in different cultural circumstances. And then let me flip it the other way. And I think this applies to people like my colleague Aaron here. There are many white people who grew up in the same cultural circles as black people in urban areas like Detroit, in urban areas like Chicago or Pittsburgh. So consequently, I've met white people who grew up around black people in the same cultural circles that may hear it the same way as those black people they grew up with. So again, I think that that kind of designation, it depends on a lot of cultural variables. Oh, I agree entirely. I mean, there are so many variables, geography, age, background. And I think that's what makes writing so rich and diverse is when people do come in with these different variables, different backgrounds, having read different sources, having listened to different music, having met different people. I mean, it's really important to have this diversity as far as listening and writing and being able to listen and write. People like Eugene Holly and John Murph and Martin Johnson are such great writers that I feel that if Eugene Holly, John Murph, those guys in particular were to write about anything, it would be great writing. And so I just want to throw that in there as well. Well, let me just also disabuse myself of that. I think in terms of great writing, I'm going to I'm going to rely on you for that. But also more to the point of the larger question, I think what black people who, who want to write about jazz have had to deal with all these years are, let's say, certain white people who did not grow up in a cultural context of African-Americans who were allowed to make very flippant, right. very arrogant, very ignorant, yes, and sometimes racist assessments about our music. We've had to deal with that a lot. So that's why that question is kind of loaded that might be put in a, quote, minefield, because unfortunately, for the early part of the literary discourse, we've had to deal with some, some of these things. When I start reading about jazz when I decided I'm going to study this music. I went back to the 30s, man. I'm looking at some of the stuff that I'm reading. I'm like, wow, they, they actually said this in print. And some of these crazy ideas about jazz and, and intellectual ability have gone on up until the 60s. 
you start to see that being broken down in the so-called Black Power era, the era of the 60s. But that's what we've had to deal with. With what I just said about people growing up in similar cultural circumstances, the rub with us is that we've had to endure those types of comments and, and beliefs about jazz. If it's hard for me to hear it, and I'm not a musician, at least not a professional, I was in high school, imagine what it's like for a real musician of someone who created these art forms, and they have to hear that all the time. You can imagine kind of vibe that that would put on them dealing with these people. Absolutely. The one thing I would just want to add to that, and this is a very sad thing, is that sort of discourse from certain critics continued after the 1960s. It might not have been as prevalent as it was before the 60s, but it certainly has continued since the 60s. I read several examples from the 70s, 80s. I'm sure it goes on to this day, but there's a lot of writing that I don't follow. So yeah, absolutely. Yes, I'd like to point out in John Janeri's book, Blowing Hot and Cool, he kind of traces this. Uh, there's a scene early in his book where John Hammond took Leonard Feather, who had just arrived from England, to the Savoy Ballroom. And everybody in there is dancing except them. They're standing up next to the stage. Janeri came up with this quote, how do you spot the jazz critic? White guys without dates. That, that could have been the title of his book. But Hammond, shortly after that, in print, criticized Duke Ellington. He called his music too white when Ellington started to do more extended works. And then later, Leonard Feather called John Coltrane anti-jazz, like about 1960. He later apologized. Even the best or the most respected white jazz critics have been dead wrong many times. Aaron, you recently wrote a book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. Were there any pitfalls to you approaching this topic with the interviews that you had, stuff you had to be conscious of? And this was not a, a jazz book, although jazz is a part of the narrative. For that book, I approached people who were part of that scene. And by that scene, I mean Chicago soul music from the late 1950s into the early 1980s. And when I would approach someone to interview them, it was up to them to talk to me. So, of course, obviously, with any sort of big project like that, not everybody I approached was willing to talk for whatever reason, whatever reason of their own. You know, that was a book published by the University of Chicago Press. So I had a number of editors look through everything and make sure that I was on the right path in terms of dealing with people and dealing with this subject. I mean, with anything I write, whether it's about a culture that is would be considered to be my culture, whatever that may be, or someone else's culture, I just find it very important to do as much research as I can, to be as respectful as I can, to respect the artist first and respect, you know, what they were coming from and dealing with the history of that period in Chicago. And of course, as everybody here in Chicago uh, should know, if, if they don't already, it was a very conflicted time. There's a lot of segregation and then also integration and the black power movement, Afrocentric movements, rise of African-American entrepreneurs. So to really study that social and cultural history as well and see how the musicians I spoke to consider that time period. And a lot of people who I spoke to who bore witness to that period, you know, they their views were different than the views from historians and the views of journalists from that time. And so I had to weigh all of these factors when they would describe a situation, an incident, and that was different than how I had read it in the history I was reading. So it was a whole 
sort of seeing a balance, seeing the different perspectives. But again, that's how I would approach any topic. But it was a challenge. I mean, any any book should be a challenge. I have been asked, what interested you in this culture? What makes you want to write about this culture? Why do you do it? And that's great. I mean, people should ask questions. And it goes back to me being a youth and question authority was the, the phrase. And if I'm going to present myself as an authority in writing a book, writing an article, whatever, then people should question why I do it for whatever reason. I want to interject a couple of things if I can. Aaron, when your book came out, I didn't have the opportunity to review it. So let me take this time to tell particularly young people who want to write about music and particularly about jazz. Check out Aaron's book, because one of the things I love about the book and one of the things I really believe should be happening with people who want to write about jazz. I think that there's a tendency for us to write about jazz in separation of everything that goes on in the world, particularly in culture. What I loved about Aaron's book, and it's not specifically about jazz, but jazz interacts and is central to everything musical going on in Chicago during the period he's covering. And that is very important, that we tend to forget that music is an art that particular genres melt into each other and mold each other. And that really happened in the 70s. I just want to say Aaron's book is a great way of how to put jazz in the overall context of what was going on in a particular place and time. I want to come back to the notion of John Hammond and Leonard Feather. I think it's very important because the kind of thing about them not having dates and stuff like that, it brings up a certain kind of ism that we don't really talk about, but we associate with white racism against Black people. And that's paternalism. John Hammond, I think he's part of the Vanderbilt family. He was a man who could greenlight a jazz musician. Everybody knew that. And I'm not questioning his love for the music. I'm sure he did love the music. But for him to say that Duke Ellington's music was not white enough is an example of the privilege that man had to say something like this, as crazy as that. That's what Black people had to deal with with some of these white critics, their paternalism toward us. Their place in society gives them that space to make those kind of comments. And of course, I would have loved for Mr. Hammond to have apologized to Duke. I don't know if he did. The fact that he called Coltrane's music anti-jazz is just another, it's just another example of the kind of privilege that these individuals had to make these broadsides against the music that we've had to deal with for, for a long time. Absolutely. And by the way, Eugene, thank you for those very, very kind uh, words about my my work. And as you said, John Hammond particularly came from a very uh, privileged background. And I think uh, the arrogance that he expressed on more than one occasion was there. A couple of quick clarifications. Eugene inadvertently misspoke. John Hammond said Duke Ellington's music was not black enough as opposed to not white enough. Also, Leonard Feather was quoting critic John Tynan, who called John Coltrane's music anti-jazz in a 1961 Downbeat article. I think if I remember right from John Gennari's book, there was a kind of a back and forth in the pages of Downbeat. Duke responded in print to what Hammond said. Eugene, also in Willard's book, there's an essay that's reprinted. You talking about my Bill Evans problem, jaded views on jazz and race. Dated visions of jazz and race. That was a pun upon a Bill Evans composition. You talked about, is it okay for me as a Black person to dig Bill Evans? Could you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, it's funny because up until that point, 
I've been a professional writer since 1990. That was the first autobiographical essay I ever wrote. And I was astonished by the response. A lot of people read it. Most people got it. Some people didn't. But what I meant by all that was I was trying to point out how in a perfect world, you hear a musician, you should be free to dig what that person is saying, what that person is playing. When I started really studying jazz, really in the 19, I've heard jazz all my life, but it wasn't until my colleague, Bill Brower, who's another gentleman who's in the book, he's sadly, he's no longer with us. Bill Brower was my first real jazz teacher. We both worked at a record store in Washington, D.C., Olson's Record and Tape. It was Bill that really turned me on to what jazz was. And I started hearing Bill Evans because I heard him on Kind of Blue. I said, who is that? I remember when I was going through my period of, of listening to all these Bill Evans albums, explorations and stuff like that. And, and some brothers would be like, Man, what you, what you what, what's into that white boy for? Not a lot, but occasionally you would get kind of like the side eye. We didn't have the term side eye back then. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is deep. And I think amongst some of my peers at that time, they didn't have shade for Bill Evans personally. What they had shade for was the way that the record companies were painting him as this kind of white hope. We had that term from boxing, right? When I look back on the, on the marketing of a Bill Evans during that period, and it wasn't Bill Evans' fault, but the way they marketed him, a Black person could be like, wow, what about Wynton Kelly on Kind of Blue? He was kind of bad. He was kind of great himself. And the irony of the whole thing for me is that Bill Evans is on some of the, quote, blackest albums in jazz. He's on Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. He's on Charles Mingus's East Coastin. He's on Oliver Nelson's Blues and the Abstract Truth. He's also on Cannonball Alley's Know What I Mean. So for all those people that were kind of like looking at Bill a certain way, there must have been something in his playing for those musicians to find merit in that. So I looked at that as a way of exploring how you talk about minefields. You know, those minefields are out there in terms of, of race. And Bill Evans himself, from everything that I've read, he didn't bring that on himself. I just looked at that as a way to explore race and how one perceives music, culture, how people view you when you're digging someone who may be out, maybe not the same culture that people are looking at. And all those kind of things that go on and some of the pitfalls that are down with that. And I just want to say, for the most part, the black people that were giving me the side eye in D.C. at the time were, were a minority. The majority of black people in that jazz community were cool. They were cool with Bill Evans or anybody. All they wanted to know is, can you play? And that was it. Very well said. Regardless of who the writer is or who the critics are, in, as far as jazz publications, you know, they're overwhelmingly white owned. And usually the editors are white. Does that affect who gets the coverage or how it's covered in your experience? It can. It has and it can. Obviously, white males of European origin on this planet, let's say American, American white males are the upper echelon of the economy, military. Although they don't control culture, they have a say in what they think culture is. And sometimes if, the, if you own the apparatus of, of, of publishing a magazine, your ideas about culture are going to be paramount in that magazine. No matter, you know, whoever runs that magazine, their, their ideas are going to be the imprint that either we accept or reject. Now, in my experience, has that had a negative impact on me per se? 
No, I've been very fortunate. Let me put, let me put it this way. I've mostly written for Downbeat Magazine. There was a time I wrote for Jazz Times. I wrote for Jazz Is, a couple of issues. But for the most part, my longest association has been with Downbeat. Now, now, when I started writing about jazz and downbeat in the 90s, it wasn't the same as someone writing about jazz and downbeat in the 60s. So whatever my forebearers had to put up with in the 1960s, it wasn't that bad in the 1990s. You know, I didn't have some of the John Hammond kind of things that were going down. That, that didn't happen on my watch. But I have seen where a white person who's producing a magazine, that person may have a limited view of the music and that can clash with someone who's writing about the music that may be more culturally advanced than the publisher. I've seen clashes like that. I've seen clashes where, let's say I want to give a particular record five stars and the editor may say, well, why? And I'm thinking, would you ask me that question if I were white? I have had that happen a couple of times, but for the most part, to answer your question, to be very to be very succinct, yes, it can affect the person, depending on how, quote, woke they are, that can have an effect. Yes. And I want to also say that one of the things that Eugene brought up, which is true, is that we are living in a capitalist society. We are living in a society that has been set up for hundreds of years with certain stratifications. And the jazz publications are really tiny. I mean, there's such a tiny, tiny speck in that larger capitalist system. I mean, these are essentially shoestring operations, small editorial staff, maybe one, maybe two editors at most, not much money for anybody in that industry, again, within this shadow of this larger capitalist system. So I think that could just open up to all sorts of issues and things about not just who gets written about, but who was able to go to a music school, who had the financial resources to be a musician, who came from a background where where it, where they could pursue something that doesn't make money, like writing about jazz. And do they have a safety net, a social safety net in being able to pursue this endeavor within this larger capitalist system? So there's all sorts of other things happening as well around all of this, like you said, as, as Eugene pointed out. Eugene, you mentioned early on Black musicians having to put up with ignorant critics. A lot of times, you know, smaller daily papers or even larger daily papers they send somebody out to interview somebody, let's just say Herbie Hancock, who doesn't really know much about his long career. But what should somebody, if for purposes of this discussion, particularly a white critic who wants to be taken seriously as a, a jazz critic, what can and should they do to educate themselves and remain aware of in order to do justice to the music? I'll answer that two ways. Well, first of all, Let's say that white critic has an assignment of Herbie Hancock, obviously, and everything is much easier to do in this Internet automated age. Learn about Herbie Hancock. Know that the, that this is the same person who had a hit in 1962 named Watermelon Man. This is the same person that had a hit in the 70s called Headhunters. This is the same person that had a hit in the 80s called Rocket. OK, so just know the subject. But more importantly, for, quote, the white journalist or the critic, because one thing I do see I see a lot of white critics or journalists that may know the music, but they have no idea about African-American history and culture. It's very important if you really want to, in my humble opinion, if you really want to be thorough in being a music journalist dealing with jazz, 
you have to have a good background about the history and culture this music comes up in. If we're talking about covering classical music, I don't even have to say that. It's implied. If I'm talking about Bach, if I really want to investigate his music or talk to someone who plays this music, I'm going to have to know the cultural environment that created that music, like the well-tempered clavier. I'm going to have to know something about German history and culture, European history and culture. That's a given. But somehow in jazz, we think that we can just just dig the music and just come talk to these people without really putting in that kind of work. So I would say that have a good basis of the culture that jazz has come out of in the United States. Because if I were teaching young people, I would say that every music that you're dealing with comes from a particular culture in a particular space in human time. And it's important to know what those cultural ingredients are. Like Afro-Cuban music and jazz have a similar cultural origins, but they grew up separately in different in different countries. They share a lot of things and they have contrasts. It's, both, it's good to know what the similarities and contrast are. And I think that's also particularly relevant today because as we see in the news in Florida, a certain governor there is trying to compromise, let's just say, the advanced placement African-American studies program. And of course, this is essential topic for anybody interested in America. So at a time when African-American studies seem to be under attack, in this particular state today, as of like right now, as I'm saying this, it just reinforces how much every American needs to know about this history, this culture of African-Americans. And of course, pertaining to jazz critics, as Eugene Holly just said, you know, all the more so. And, you know, for jazz musicians, for, for everybody. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Eugene. I'm Rick Mitchell, the host of this episode of The Buzz. We'll be back in two weeks. Again, we've been talking with Aaron Cohen and Eugene Hawley on the subject of Black music, white critics. Thank you for listening. I'm Susan Brink for the Jazz Journalists Association. Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the JJA. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo.